now switching tack slightly and talking about, well, more biases actually, um, and how to empower diversity within corporate leadership. I'm joined on the stage by Susan Roberts, James Taylor and Melanie Willis. And just by many, many backgrounds for, for Susan and, and Melanie, I'm, I'm sure you're all aware, but just in terms of why they're here specifically, both Susan and Melanie are involved in the 30% Club. Um, and then James, as uh, Managing Director of SBS, we thought was a great champion for diversity and inclusion and uh, almost the purpose of SBS is to <coughs> champion um, inclusion in particular in Australian society. So all very well positioned to, to talk about this. Um, Susan, I might start with you um, with a simple question and, and also maybe you can give some context to what the 30% Club is before we go too much further, but why is diversity important? Um, so, we're all aware that we live in a very complex world and particularly investment management, it's, it's enormously complex to make investment decisions. Um, and I think there's general belief that a team working well together makes good investment decisions. But a team needs to have diversity of thought and background and experience um, in order to, to maximise our ability to make the right decisions. Um, so, the reason why there's so much focus on women diversity is simply it's a shorthand for diversity of thought. So if you have a group of directors or a group of portfolio managers and they're all male, it actually sends a signal that maybe they're not thinking about diversity of thought when they're hiring. Um, and so why we focus on female diversity is it's just quick and easy way to test whether we're actually getting that diversity of thought. Now the 30% club, which is something that I do, um, we're focused on getting more diversity at the board level in Australia, so we're trying to get 30% of women on ASX 200 boards, or ASX 300 boards actually now. Um, where we are in Australia, we've got about, um, the latest numbers was 29.7% women on ASX 200, so we're close to the 30% um, the at an aggregate level. Still four companies with no women, there's still 46 companies with only one woman. Um, I think there's, there's we're going backwards at the moment in terms of the appointments for the last quarter. Only 30% of new directors appointed were women. And I think the next statistics are going to come out, I believe, today or tomorrow, and will have dropped from 29.7 um, down probably to 29.6, 29.5. So we made a certain level of progress, but we're hitting up against some quite strong barriers at the moment. We'll, we'll come to the, those barriers and, and perhaps turn to Melanie around that later. but. What were the leaders for success? What were, how, did, how did the 30% Club make or contribute to that, to that progress and, and what do you think were the keys to that? Yeah. So if you think about the, the, the levers of power that you have in making change in corporate Australia, the first one was the chairs themselves, um, which at the time we started were predominantly men. Um, they had a belief that diversity was an important point and that female diversity was a, a great place to start. And so the... The 30% Club set up a group of chairs who worked with each other. They talked to each other. It's a network, um, and networks can be powerful. That, so that was the first thing that we did. We set up a headhunters group who said that they would put more women candidates forward. Um, to be completely honest, there was a bit of window dressing going on there. Um, I think they joined the 30% Club to say that they joined the 30% Club. Um, we had an education group that Melanie chaired that came up with the facts, the numbers. What happens when you add women? What happens to your return on equity? What happens to... You know, are there enough women to find? Just so that we could go out with facts. But probably the most important group um, was the people in this room. Um, so it's the investment managers and the asset owners 
who quietly, generally, occasionally loudly, spoke to companies and said, listen, we think your company will be better run if you have a more diverse management team, a more diverse board, and a more diverse workforce. Um, and so they worked over years and years and years in their interactions with companies to encourage them to get diversity. And one of the biggest things that happens, I think it was Axie, um, came out and said, if you, they got to the point after working for years with companies that they said, if you have no women on your board and the next person you put up to elect as the next director is another man, we're voting against. It doesn't matter how qualified he is. If you've, after five years of us telling you we want diversity, if the next one's a man, we're voting against regardless. Um, and that came out about 18 months ago and I think they only had to do it once or twice. And the number of companies with zero men um, went from, I think there were still 35 or 40, to four in a very short period of time. Um, a lot of those groups who voted at the zero level have now moved their target to, if you only have one woman, um, don't put up another man next time. So the, the power of the people in this room to make change is, is significant. Just turning to, to this room and, and I guess the investment industry generally, you were a very senior person at a funds management firm. What, what worked or what didn't work? <laughs> is more obvious, but what, what worked in terms of creating diversity at the, at the firms that you've worked at? Yeah, so I was a, pretty much a failure at creating diversity in investment teams when I was at Lazard Asset Management. Um, it's hard. Um, it's hard because investing is hard, active investing is hard. Um, you need a team that feels collegiate and you need a team that supports each other when things are going badly. They really need to trust each other. Um, and so to introduce a new and different way of thinking into that team, although it might be good, it's actually very uncomfortable. So the investment management industry itself has, has a lot further to go than what we have to do on, on boards, and it's hard. The other problem we always hear from investment managers is, oh, the consultants don't like it when we change our teams, and so to add extra people in or to get women or, or minorities into our teams is actually viewed negatively by some of the clients and the consultants. Um, which, look, I don't, I don't believe that. But there are, there are a whole lot of challenges in investment management and, and there's a way to go. The other stat I'd tell you, which was interesting, is if you think we're making progress, you know, we're almost at 30% even though we're going downhill now. We just did a study of the IPOs that happened in 2018 and there were 107 IPOs in 2018, 250 new directors. So these are companies that are forming for the first time who don't have the history, they don't have the problems that some of the bigger companies have, 16.6% were women appointed to those IPOs. So we're getting there, but we're a long way. Long way. So we're now just going to show you a video, which it was produced by the AICD, um, and it's questions that women directors were asked, but it's women asking those questions. So it's a, 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 bit, of a, a bit of a flip, and I think... Um, It'll take you on a bit of a journey. So we'll have that video now, please. Welcome, Greg, and thanks for taking the time to come in today. Well, welcome, Greg. Thanks for taking the time to come in today. Welcome, Greg. Thanks for taking the time to come in today. We're adopting a proactive approach to diversity and seeking a man for our board. We think we could really benefit from the unique male perspective. Good to meet you in person after speaking on the phone. You certainly look more mature than your professional photo. Amazing experience you have, Greg. I'll bet all those women turn their heads when you walk onto the training floor. 
We're so pleased to be able to speak to you about this role. Just so you know, we do have another man on the board so you won't feel alone in the restroom. You've got quite diverse executive experience. It's refreshing to see a man who's actually had the tough P&L responsibility. So you are aware that you're going to be required from time to time to travel to board meetings. You do have arrangements in place for your kids. Given we're a manufacturing company, we go on site visits. You do have practical clothing, don't you? You know, like sensible shoes. We have had a male director before and it just didn't work. What makes you different to other men? We're really serious about getting another man on our board, but so many of them just aren't the right fit. Do you find it's the men who are always the ones to get emotional? You're not emotional, are you? interviewing for board positions are faced with questions like these far too often. 2018 is time to press for progress. Let's stop the bias and focus on achieving diversity on Australian boards. So what's the hashtag? Funny not funny. Mm. Um, James, I might turn to you, you're um, leading an organisation that has diversity and inclusion at its, at its core. What, what, why is it important for you and what practices have you found work in, in hiring and managing teams? Well, hello, Bill. Uh, look, uh, I run a public broadcaster. Uh, public broadcasters are by definition a public good. We are largely government-funded, but not entirely government-funded, and, and we have the opportunity to speak to all Australia about being a more diverse, inclusive society. You know, a society that hopefully harnesses the diversity we have to generate more levels of understanding of each other, more levels of respect of one another, and ultimately more economic participation of everyone here. And so if we're going to talk to Australia about that, we better be world-class internally. That's the first thing. So there's just an article of faith and trust with audiences that you need to have a workforce that reflects the society from which it's drawn. Secondly, uh, you, you know, we are, we're a subscale public broadcaster. We're, we're small. We're competing in, a, in an incredibly dynamic industry, as you know, all of you are. But what I've seen over the last few years as the organisation has pivoted very aggressively to digital consumption, a uh, form of consumption that is, is well suited to us as a sort of small, nimble organisation, is that you know, diversity in and of itself is sort of interesting, and we have a very diverse workforce. 36% you know, of people are born overseas, 40% uh, of our staff speak a language other than English at home, which is double the national average, 3.5% Indigenous, 60% of our senior leaders are women. We've got all, all of those boxes ticked, if you will, but diversity in and of itself is kind of just a hygiene factor. What's more interesting is when you take that diversity and you harness it for inclusion, for better inclusion outcomes for your staff, which leads to better outcomes for your audiences. So you look at SBS, the only free-to-air network that's growing in the linear space, linear TV growing, uh, pretty, uh, pretty extraordinary given the changes in the market. Uh, you look at the, the video on demand consumption in Australia, all the major networks have got video on demand consumption. SBS is the equal number one player in that space might have noticed we haven't got the NRL, we haven't got the AFL, we haven't got married at first sight. Uh, <laughs> that is about the teaming that we do internally. It's about not just thinking about the work we have to do, what we have to do, but explicitly thinking about the way in which we're going to put teams together to leverage the best outcomes from that diversity. Diversity of seniority, diversity of experience, diversity of culture, diversity of belief. 
we actively think about that when we're putting our teams together. We don't just grab one account and one technology person and one of this and one of that and hope they're going to sort it out. So we orchestrate that. And the other thing we do is we think about it as a kind of a, if you will, a marriage counselling opportunity. So we put a, we put a, we put a counselling layer, a sort of a, a facilitation layer over all of our big projects. So that there's always a couple of people in the room monitoring how the work is getting done, not just what the teams are doing. Now you might think that carries a bit of overhead and it perhaps does up front, but I can tell you it results in much lower cycle times, much better harmony in the teams, the right questions and answers applied at the right time in the project rather than the usual, uh, you get to the end and you didn't think about that, you didn't ask this person, you didn't consult them. And it means that we're actually winning in a market that's incredibly competitive. That's about harnessing the, the latent diversity in, in the organisation. And we, we have an array of you know, fairly standard, fairly straightforward processes and practices to remove bias from recruitment processes to make sure that the candidate pools are, have got good gender representation, good diversity representation, to make sure that think we do simple things like, you know, to encourage people that might have a, a disability of some sort. We ask them at the, before the interview, do you need any assistance through the interview process? A lot of people don't even apply for roles because they assume the process is going to be set up in a way that, that disadvantages them. A lot of these things are, are pretty straightforward, well-known in industry, well-applied in a lot of organisations. This is about being committed to them. Can you talk to how, so we sort of, you know, anecdotally this is a great idea, but can you talk specifically to how empirically that has improved your business and sort of from a bottom line perspective? Yeah, sure. Uh, so... You know, as I said, we, we started our, our digital journey about three years ago. We've, we've gone from having zero registered users on digital project pro products to, within 18 months, 7 million registered users. That's a pretty big chunk of the Australian population. Over 30% of those people come back every month. That's because the product design, uh, the rate of change in the product design has been very, very high. Uh, we, we, at the same time, have got, you know, class-leading staff engagement. So, you know, best in class for any media organisation anywhere in the world, staff engagement, which is, you know, the, the fundamental measure of, you know, whether people want to turn up to work, whether they like being there, whether they sign, say nice things about the, the organisation when they're outside work and, and whether they're thinking of sticking around. And, and our audience feedback at the same time has gone up immensely. So the empirical evidence to me is that at the same time that your organisation is, is achieving extraordinary success, we're getting, getting incredible feedback about the sort of place it is to work. Congratulations. Oh, well, yeah, long may continue. <laughs> We've also got another video to, to show now. It's an SBS recruitment video. Can you play that one, please? Yeah, no, just do me some good old <laughs> yoga. I, I didn't know you were into yoga. Hell, oh, yeah, I've been doing it for years. Should I come back <laughs> later? Uh, yeah, I'll email you. <laughs> Number two. Yeah. Yeah, we're so excited. <laughs> we just painted the nursery. It's not long. Oh, Sal, could you send me those videos? <laughs> <laughs> Long now until the birth. <laughs> so come out, baby. We want to meet you.
Your fiance's name's Justine. Oh, give me that. Oh my gosh, you're right. It, it's meant to say Justin. Oh. It's a typo. What are you doing? Shredding it. Justine, I mean, Justin and I can't send these out. But. <laughs> I should really ask for my money back. Well, we have a paper shredder just over there. So I'm getting married. <laughs> Very nice. So Melanie, welcome. Um, Susan mentioned uh, that you were involved in the working group at the 30% Club that talked about facts and you know return on equity and, and other measures. Can you talk a little bit about some of the research that you've done and some of the findings um, in the listed market in particular uh, in terms of why diversity is important and, and what impact it can have. Sure. Uh, well, thank you. And I, listen, I'd like to say to this room, um, which I think Susan said, a big thank you because you have had the 30% Club and the investors behind that have had a really big impact on probably the single greatest impact mm -hmm. in increasing uh, diversity on Australian boards. Um, but we have still a lot more to do. And I think it's also uh, great to have James here because I think James, just listening to James, and I've heard him a few times, it's unfortunate, but he really, what I would say is he really role models what an inclusive leader is, you know, in a, in a very transparent, authentic way. I mean, he shows com absolute commitment to the cause. He shows courage, cognizance, curiosity, cultural intelligence, and collaboration through everything he's doing. So, and I think that's, at, at the, at, in leadership in, in uh, Australian organisations, that's their level of commitment that, um, that will bring about greater uh, diversity and gender diversity. So in terms of, I think that there's, a, there's an awful lot of work that has been done on the benefits and the, the value proposition for organisations, the commercial imperative of diversity from people like McKinsey's and Baines, and I'm very happy for anyone here to point you to all that research. I think the research is well and truly there. What, um, what is not happening fast enough is really getting to um, getting that traction. And I think part of the issue is, I think as the world becomes more uncertain, people, people revert into a more conservative mode, which is then moving backwards to actually hiring someone who looks a lot more like me, because it's a lot, it's a lot easier and I'll feel safer and it'll be more comfortable, rather than actually what is required, which is out of the outside-in thinking, cross-sector thinking, and thinking from people with very different backgrounds and um, perspectives. Uh, where to get more women on boards, we need more women at senior leadership levels in organisations. <coughs> CEW, Chief Executive Women, just did a census last year, 2019, where um, we looked at the level of in ASX 200, the level of women at different levels in an organisation. Um, at the CEO level, we've gone backwards. At the CFO level, we're up to 16% from 14%, and that has been a big focus. And one of the big pieces of research that the 30% Club did was to look at what the pathway was for women to get into board roles and into these senior executive roles, and that's actually getting line management roles. And tw as of 2019, the number of women on, in executive leadership positions on ASX 200 is 25%. Of that, 
75% of them were in functional roles and only 13% were in line roles. And that's a significant opportunity, I think, to make a measurable change is to drive female participation in line roles, which is the P&L roles, which is the drivers, which will make the difference. Might open it up to the floor. Any questions at this point? Women and men are allowed to ask questions. Um, we might just turn this to some, the sort of psychological, I guess, behavioural aspects of, of this in terms of how do you work with people that are different to you and, um, you know, everyone's kind of kind of guilty of that. I mean, what, what are some of the tips, James, in terms of, you know, what you see in your teams? Is it, is it sort of not falling to default? Is it not being lazy? Is it like it requires an extra level of, of work that, um, you know, is necessary? Can you talk us through that a little bit, that psychological aspect? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, homogenous teams are easy, right? They're easy to run. The default is always to, to, to hire what you know and to run it the way you've run things in the past. And that's great, so it's a choice. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, that, that, that we do treat it like a psychology project. You know, you, you, we always make sure that as teams are embarking on large-scale change work, and you know, we're, we're, we're an organisation that has been a linear business for, for its entire history, deciding what people are going to watch, deciding when they're going to watch it, uh, transforming to an organisation that has to be on multiple platforms concurrently, that has to have a Netflix-esque experience on all of its platforms, you know, perfect, um, that, that has to be prescient and, and aggressive in terms of its cycle times and changes, is a fundamentally different, it's a different business. It's completely different skill sets, completely different technology infrastructure, completely different operating models, uh, different age demographics, and so, you know, we, we really saw the opportunity to fail and, and, and so we wanted to go about it quite differently to the way we'd gone to market previously. And so we, we always make sure that on our, our large projects we have, as I said, a facilitation layer, which is people who aren't actively working on the project, they are there to help the project team work. And that is, uh, the, that is important because as you bring in different resources, um, different perspectives, different cultures, different faiths. Um, as you bring that complexity in the project, it makes it harder to run the project. People take offence at each other. There are different cultural mores. There are different work patterns. There are different expectations. And so you know, it's harder to get that machine to work. But when the machine works, it works a lot more effectively. And so I think you can't just assume that, 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 that chucking a bunch of diverse people into a room and saying, job done, sort it out going to work, you actually need to help the teams work effectively together. And so it can be subtle, but, it, but it's a, as I say, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a counselling layer that just sort of sits there, just helps orchestrate the project such that, that people get what they need out of it and get the business what it needs. Is it fair to say you have different profit motives to some other businesses that you know, may not want to add that extra layer? Well, I, no, I, yes and no. I mean, it's true. We, we, we're about 400 million in revenue, so relatively small. About, about just under 70% of that is government revenue, to be sure. That revenue base has been falling for the last five years. What I will say is every dollar that, that has been invested in growing our co content and our digital uh, capabilities, and that's been tens of millions of dollars per year over the last four years, has come from our own revenue-generating activities. So we've entirely funded our growth. 
and we've done it because we knew that if, if, we, if we didn't have a scale digital proposition, we'd be dead as an organisation. You know, surviving an organisation in this space for the win strong linear proposition, uh, you know, you, you absolutely need to cannibalise yourself aggressively to survive. And so I think I, think I imagine our digital profitability much, looks much like many other digital players at the moment, which means they're aggressively funding their growth at the moment to build a scale position, which they can then monetize. And the facilitation cost is, is, is fractional compared to what's at stake. Melanie, can, can I put you on the spot a little bit and ask you about your personal experience, you know, either in the past or now um, as a non-exec at, at Challenger? How, how are the boards that you work on and, and the other organisations that you've worked with, how have they approached diversity and in particular attitudes to women? So Challenger has, uh, I think both my listed boards have both committed to 30% by uh, Challenger's come out on the board by 2020 and they've both signed up to the, what the 30% club has done is have as many as possible ASX 200 chairs sign up to a commitment to have 30% women on board and that has been a really important pledge and commitment. Um, and Challenger is absolutely committed. It, it, for every single board meeting, uh, we see for every single team what percentage, and uh, we've targets a percentage of women at different levels in the organisation. And we see all the things that are being done by the CEO around um, podcasting, around ensuring that promotions and, and making sure that we've got pipelines. Challenger set up a women's leadership program for the last two years where the other the two of the female directors have spoken to the women leaders. We also have mentoring programs for females. So it's a, it's a big priority because, I mean, Challenger is very, uh, is driven as a, as a strong financial outcomes and they understand that means diversity. Mm. So it is a big, and interestingly, um, there's been some really interesting work done quite recently on what makes smart teams. Um, MIT has done this work with someone called Professor Thomas Malone and he's looked at, he's got the, this uh, organisation called the Centre for Collective Intelligence and they're looking at it from a point of view in, of saying what is human intelligence and what is artificial intelligence and where should they work together. And in looking at that, they've tried to understand as a first point what makes a smart intelligence team making good decisions. Um, first thing was the IQ of the individual. Second thing is, in terms of the team, is that not one individual person is dominating the discussion, which I think goes to your point around diversity. And the third is um, actually the number, which is surprising, the number of women in the team, because the higher the number of women in the team, they found that often there was a higher level of social perceptiveness, which actually led to better outcomes in terms of what the decisions were. And I think the other piece around that, which is really interesting, is how do you get, as a board or as a leadership team, how do you get to really, really good decisions? Juliet Burke from Deloitte has um, um, written a book called Two Heads, which is a really, I would commend you to read it, it's really good. And she says, if you look at the, the Western mind, if they look at a picture, you'll be immediately looking for what, what's the key point there, right? And that's where we go to, we say, what's the, the key point? Whereas if you look at the Asian mind, it's more around what are the connections? Why, what are all these things and how are they connected together? Why are they sitting there and what, what is the purpose of the individual pieces of the picture? And if you think about decision making and how powerful that is and how as we as directors and leaders need to have a much broader perspective of stakeholders when we're making really important and good decisions, it just goes to show how important diversity is.
Can I just throw it to the audience for a second? Of the asset owners, who has sort of positive hiring practices in terms of, um, for example, doing blind screening of CVs or, or anything like that? I know CBUS has, has done some pretty proactive things. Australian, where's Australian Super? <laughs> Justin. Anyone else want to make a comment? So, what would what would you guys leave this room with if if you you know if you could impart some knowledge in terms of how to help facilitate and create change? Because clearly the room is you know not <laughs> even thirty percent probably, but um, you know, and so we need to move on this. How, what would what would you what would you impart in terms of you know one or two things that could they could proactively be done? Look, so I think the first thing is to accept and internalise that diversity does improve outcomes. Um, diversity of thought improves outcomes. Um, so once you internalise that, then your actions become much easier because then you start behaving to achieve success. So you need to convince yourself that diversity does improve outcomes. Um, the second thing then is to actively try and change the composition of your teams and your businesses towards that. Um, and it's hard to do. It's not that there's a whole lot of bad people out there trying not to have diverse teams. We are biased by our background, we are biased by our life experiences, and we need to accept and understand that. Um, it's funny, I think the, the public service gets this a lot better than the private companies do. I think when I started work at Sydney University, I had to go through a, an online training program, and part of one of the videos I had to go through made me reflect on what is my background and what are my experiences, both cultural, being a woman, where I went to university, what my skills were, um, and by reflecting on who I was and what I, where I came from, you start to realise that not everybody comes from those places um, and that just helps in the awareness. So I think it's, you, you really need to convince yourself that diversity is important and then you need to start acting to, to improve the organisations that you work for. And all of you make decisions about, um, about your organisations at a whole lot of different levels um, and you can influence change but you have to speak up to do it. Okay. Yeah, look, um, a similar point. I think... Um, People in our positions or my position often get a lot of laudits for being fully formed humans and open-minded. I'm operating from pure craven self-interest. Okay? This, <laughs> is, this, is, this is not altruism. Yep. Uh, I'm running a small organisation that is facing existential threats. And I'm utterly convinced that the things we know today and knew yesterday are not the things that are going to help us to succeed tomorrow. And therefore, I need the most challenging, diverse uh, team that I can construct to help bring those ideas to bear more quickly so that we can move more quickly to meet our markets. 
I imagine that is true of many industries represented in any room that I'll speak in any time over the next couple of years. It's hard, but the paybacks and the rewards are there for you as a leader. Um, so, listen, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely male engagement in, in um, gender equity efforts, and I think that's everyone in the room. Uh, it's actually visible and committed leadership around it, continuous communication, um, making it inclusive, inclusion and diversity programs where everyone sees it as an opportunity, not just um, the people who are going to benefit from it making it personal personal, and making it really effective. And I would say that there's about three on the uh, CW website. We have a lot of research there, um, great research of organisations doing really good work and making a difference, including Qantas ANZ, the Army, KPMG. Jeez, I've forgotten this bit. So I would really encourage you to get on the website, look at the research, look at what's actually working, and test and learn, get out there and make a difference. Because I think you, you're the ones who will benefit it from it, but equally you're the ones with the levers to really drive it. Well, thank you to the three of you for uh, an excellent session. Please thank the panel. Thank you.